0: Hey, I'm impressed. You guys, wow, I'm impressed by I have sound. Look at that. Uh, no, it's really sweet that you all are thinking about how you, you minister from different places where you're in life and in work and career and thinking about how you're going to minister the gospel to other folks and work with the church, and that's really sweet that you'd uh, take the extra time and effort to do this. So I appreciate being able to be with you, I'm excited to be with you. That's a, That's a sweet thing. If you see me favoring one hand, I'll tell you the quick story, okay? You see the bandage on one hand? Okay, believe it or not, poisonous fish in Spain spined me. Okay, that's it. That's the story. So I was, uh, I was preaching for World Harvest Mission. Some of you may know that organization, World Harvest Mission, and Jack Miller and uh, Sunship Movement and different things. So anyway, they were having their international conference in Spain, and I was speaking there. And just one morning with the missionaries, we said, you know, let's pool our resources, we'll go out fishing. So we, we fished for mackerel for one morning, and kind of, you know, the, the captain says, all right, we've got to go. And what does every fisherman do when you say you got to go? You say, one more cast, right? One more cast. So one more cast. I caught a fish. It was the same size as what we've been catching, you know, about this big, and the same shape, but a little different color. And so, you know, we were getting ready to go. So I take it off, and, and as I reach down to take that fish off the hook, the captain goes, you know, in Spanish, something like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I go, what? You know, I take it off the hook And uh, <laughs> whatever that was, you know I had no idea But um, So I take it off the hook He comes sprinting out of the wheelhouse You know, he comes over to where I'm standing And he, and he grabs my hand and he looks at it And he says, you know, kind of like You okay? And, I, and there was this little bitty pen prick, You know, where a little bitty spot of blood Didn't even know I'd been stuck And he looked at it And he does this John Wing thing He takes out his knife and he go and I and he and he goes, you know, he goes you know, like he, he's telling me to do this. He's gonna cut and I'm supposed to do this. And I go, I don't, I don't need that, you know. So, you know, he kind of gets disgusted, he puts it back in there, shakes his head, and we'd go gun we we're about two miles out, so we go he'd gunning for the short You know when I knew I was in trouble is when we got to the to the no wake zone, you know, when you're getting back to the harbor and there's you're supposed to slow down no wake zone. He gunned it all the way through the no wake zone, so <laughs> To get us to the heart. Yeah, and then, you know, said, so, you know, you need to go to a hospital. So anyway, um, it didn't hurt initially at all. By about a half hour, I was in some of the biggest pain of my life. And um, afterwards, if you look it up on Wik- Wikipedia, it's it's called a weaver fish. Okay, a and that's W-E-E-V-E-R. In Spain, they call it a scorpion fish. And it spines, so it only comes up when it's kind of, you know, Antagonized in some way, so I never even saw spines, you know, because it, it didn't raise them at least when I saw it. So I never even saw it, but uh, you, if you go, you can see it on YouTube too, they show these things swim around in the Mediterranean. But um, my favorite line on the Wikipedia site was that the Weaver fish has the most painful animal toxin that is known, but it will not kill you usually. <laughs> So, so, so I was glad I read that line after I was feeling better. But you know, here we are. We're kind of in a remote part of Spain, really, in this little clinic, and they don't have anything really to help you. You know, um, so uh, I got. They gave me prednisone to help healing, and really nothing for the pain. So I got with the missionary as were. Well, they started feeding me. You know, the people who have back troubles. They like they start feeding me oxycodone. You know, now also if you go to Wikipedia and it's correct, it says that narcotics will not help with this pain. You know, to stop it, you actually have to have a nerve block of some sort, which, of course, so I'm now I'm kind of, you know, <laughs> like drifting, but I'm really in terrible pain, which lasted for quite a while. And then my body started going to spasms because it's a, it's a nerve toxin, you know. So I, every 30 seconds, you know, I'm, I'm going into spasm. So my wife is, you know, kind of with me and missionaries, and people are praying over me and so forth. And apparently it worked. I'm still here. <laughs> but uh, a week ago I had surgery on it because it, ke- it keeps puffing up because they think there's maybe some kind of exotic ocean bacteria in there now, too. So I'll go again to the doctor on this coming. So if you see me keel over, you know why, okay? <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, as some of you know, I think when I saw Chet tonight, I shook hands and oh, why did I do that? You know, because I just instinctively hold out a hand to shake, but it, I have to favor it. So that's, that's the weird story of why there's a Band-Aid on my hand and why it gets kind of puffy when I talk after a while. So that's weird. Isn't that weird, Jim? That is right. He stepped on it. You're on the Wikipedia site, aren't you? I know. Every Everybody... No, I did this. And everybody who goes to the Wikipedia site says that. That's why it won't kill you usually, because the of recorded death is 27. That's right. Everybody tells me that. Even the doctor, he looked it up on Wikipedia. Because <laughs> the, uh, you know, they don't know what it is here in the States, you know. I mean, it's not, it's not a fish here. So, you know, everybody looks it up to see what it was. So, anyway. I'm going to pray with you, okay? Father, thank you for our time together. And uh, thank you for men who uh, love the Lord Jesus and love the gospel, and they uh, kind of go above and beyond to now seek instruction in your word and the proclamation of it. For uh, their heart's commitment, I pray, that they would not only have that commitment, but feel the, the joy and the wonder of your spirit using their lives and their gifts for Christ's glory. Even do that tonight, we pray, in the way that we take and absorb information about the scriptures, but for, not just for ourselves, for your people. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, real quick history, and uh, those of you who are in Chicago, you've heard some of this, but let me tell you why uh, I wrote that book that some of you are talking about called christ Center Preaching, and uh, why it became important to me. It, the main reason is because I do not want you to do what I did, okay? And uh, here's here's what I did, Um when I graduated from seminary, uh, I had a great privilege. I, um, I was asked to be the pastor of the oldest and largest church in our regional association. So that's called a presbytery in Presbyterian circles. So it was in southern Illinois, and it was in Sparta, Illinois. Some of you may know where Sparta is. So I was in a church that—you grew up in Chester? Well, you, know, you certainly know that. And so I grew up— uh, I didn't grow up. I, I began to pastor that uh, that Sparta church. In its first 150 years, it had only three pastors. Can you imagine that? So uh, they were all Scottish. The first was a Scottish missionary, and uh, he established the first Presbyterian church that was in the Indiana Territory. So before Illinois was a state, it was part of the Indiana Territory. So the first Presbyterian church in the Indiana Territory, pastored by a man named Samuel Wiley, Uh, He was followed by a man named Smiley, who was followed by a man named Stewart. So the first 150 years, Wiley, Smiley, and stewart It kind of sounds like a Scottish law firm. And uh, 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 I didn't stay 50 years, but when I came, you know, here I was this young guy in this historic church, and that was a great privilege. And I must tell you, I I, I really did. I thought I was hot stuff, you know, here right out of seminary. But... um, ancient history for a lot of you now, that would have, that would have been, uh, when I began pastoring that church, that would have been in the early 1980s. And while you're not aware of it, what was happening was a lot of EPA regulations were going into effect in southern Illinois. So southern Illinois, uh, mining farming area, and a lot of the mines are high sulfur, soft coal, which means because the new EPA regulations, they are shutting down one after another after another. So, thousands of people are going out of work in southern Illinois, and including the town I was in. The other big piece of the economy is farming, and in the 1980s, the farm economy was not what it is now. It was in depression. So, you have what were called Centennial farms. You know what a Centennial farm has been in a family for 100 years or more? Centennial farms are being sold right over, left. you know, just one after another, to bigger farms because families can't stay on the farms anywhere they can't afford. Everything's in depression. now. You know, you're old enough and you're pastorally minded enough that you just you just think what happens to a community when all the jobs and all the money go away. You know, while jobs decline, what begins to skyrocket? What sort of things begin to skyrocket when jobs decline? Drinking skyrockets. What else skyrockets? Crime. What kinds of crime? Theft, anything associated with drugs. Okay, anything associated with drugs. So theft to support it, um, abuse that goes along with it, uh, just you know, the illegal handling or whatever of, of, of drugs in themselves. What happens to marriages? Oh boy. You know, divorce skyrockets. What happens to uh, abuse? Marriages, parents, you know, everything. It I mean it's just it's just an awful situation. And worse perhaps than then all those particulars what is just like a blanket over the entire community is depression i mean everywhere it is the common cold of the church everybody is depressed now i teach people by saying as i began to face you know a declining economy skyrocketing addictions skyrocketing abuse skyrocketing divorce and everywhere depression i knew exactly what to do because i'd been to seminary which, of course, means what? I had no clue, right? Now, I thought I knew. I mean, I thought I knew, which says, you know, you preach the word, right? I mean, that, you know, that's the cure. And so what I did Sunday after Sunday for people who were struggling with addiction and abuse and depression is I would stand in the pulpit and I would say as a young man to these people, stop it. Now, you just stop it. Now, you know what you're doing is wrong. It says right here in the Bible, you shall not be drunk. It says you shall love your wife as yourself. It says right here what you so you would you just stop it. I said stop it so often I could not stand me anymore. And I actually did go home by my my wife one day and say, I can't do this anymore. I did not go to seminary to learn to hurt people. But I stand in the pulpit every Sunday and I hurt people. Because they need help, and all I know to do is to tell them to stop messing up. Now, uh, believe it or not, we really did make that call to her parents. You know, to say, you know, we may be coming to live with you. Because, I, you know, I know I have this position, but listen, I can't do this anymore. And uh, there's another man that you've become aware of who I became aware of at that time, and I can't even tell you why. Uh, Chet mentioned earlier, Sidney Gradanus. I do not know how or why I got a hold of a book by Sidney Gradanus. But in a book that he wrote called Sola Scriptura, which was his doctoral dissertation, kind of rewritten, Cindy Grodonis began to do this. He was studying a controversy in the Dutch church a hundred years ago. And here was the controversy. How do we preach the heroes of the Bible? Hear the question? There's, you know, there's Gideon and there's Moses and there's Joshua. You know, how do we preach the heroes of the Bible? And what he began to do is he'd look at the heroes of the Bible and say, you know, you can say, you know, well, David, you know, he was a pretty cool guy, you know, and he beat up the lion and the bear, and he had a big faith, and so he beat up Goliath. And, and you know, if you have enough faith, you can beat up your Goliaths too, so you should just be like David. But there's just one problem with the messages of be like David. What's the problem? Not only are you not David, David wasn't like David all the time, right? I mean, it's true he got Goliath, but later on Bathsheba got him, right? And we should say David fell to his own sin, to his own lust, and, um, and then raised bad kids. And then murdered Bathsheba's husband so he could have her as his mistress and wife. And then at the end of his life, numbered his troops as though his success were his own doing. David was an adulterer and a murderer and a prideful, arrogant king. Do you really want to tell people to be like David? And as Gerdanus began to look at all the heroes of the Bible, you know what he ultimately said? He said, you know what? All the heroes are a mess. Every one of them, they're all messes. I mean, you can say to people, be like Abraham. Man of faith, went to a land he did not know, you know, because he was so faithful. That's right. It's it's very true. And on the way, he only gave away his wife twice to other men. Right? Do you really want to be like Abraham? Well, Gerdonis' point was there is only one hero in the Bible. Who is that? That's Christ Jesus. And the message of all the scriptures is not just kind of pointing at good people and say, you know, you'd be like them. It's not even pointing to commands and saying, you just straighten up and do all that and you'll be okay with God. But because the fact of the matter is, as the Apostle Paul says, we who are Jews by birth know that no one is justified by keeping the law because you can't do it. So the Bible is not just kind of looking at heroes and saying, be like them. In fact, the message of all the Scripture is even the heroes need another hero. And that's not just the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the whole Scripture. Now, maybe that is entirely obvious to you that there's only one hero in the Bible. It was totally revolutionary, to my thinking. Because what I've been doing is I've been saying to people, you straighten up, you fly right, God will love you for that. And what I began to say instead was, listen, if God could use people as messed up as David, if God could use people as messed up as Abraham and Moses and the apostles, if God could use people as messed up as that, maybe God could still use you. Though well, you're struggling with addictions and depression and your marriage is coming apart. But you know the one who most needed the message that God could still use messed up people? Who needed that message more than anybody? A young guy who thought he was big stuff and was already a failure in his mid-twenties. That was me. And to be able to believe that God could use messed up people was really beginning to give people hope again. And I began to recognize that that was what Scripture was doing. Far more than just saying, here's good behavior. That what the Bible is doing instead is saying to God's people, you have hope. And by the way, it's not in you. You have another hope. And uh, I'll say right here at the beginning, something I hope that you walk away with tonight, and it's just this. There's another man who has studied Biblical preaching through the centuries. And he said there is one common denominator of all great preaching through all the centuries. Now, that's a very bold statement because if you study preaching at all, you recognize that, that the preaching of the first century is very different. The apostolic preaching from the preaching of somebody like Chrysostom, you know, the golden tongue is very different. And Chrysostom is very different than Spurgeon. And Spurgeon is very different than the Puritans. And the Puritans are very different than the way we preach today. See, what could there possibly be a common denominator of all those preachers? And what this man said was the common denominator of all great preaching is all great preaching gives hope. Not just instruction. Not just how to straighten and it. All great preaching gives people hope again. And I began to recognize that. That if you say, even if you're messed up, God can still use you because he's not depending on you. You're depending on him. If that's your message, people have hope again, even when they've messed up. And that actually gives them strength and the ability to live the life that you actually want them to live. Not because you're browbeating them, because they have hope. And what I want to do tonight is talk to you about how you give people hope, no matter where they are in Scripture, okay? No matter where you are in Scripture, how do you give hope? And what I want you to think about this is just to kind of remember the big picture. If you were to draw a timeline, okay, and you were to say, what is the timeline of Scripture as it's unfolding, kind of that big, big picture... You'd say that Scripture begins with a message of creation, right? That's where Scripture begins. And you would say that Scripture kind of ends, kind of the human timeline, with what we call consummation, right? That's when Christ returns, new heavens and new earth, go on eternally. That's the consummation. But I want you to kind of think in this kind of big picture of what's going on. In the Bible, this set creationists, God made everything good, Right? Did it stay good? So very soon after that, we have a time that's called the fall, right? So though everything was made good, it all went what? It all went bad. Now, you know, ultimately, it's going to be made perfect, right? New heavens, new earth, everything made perfect. But what's happening in between? I mean, you recognize this is the great bulk of biblical history, creation fall is happening right at the beginning and then the rest of this what's happening in that time we usually call this redemption have you heard that category those categories that's kind of the big story of the bible just in kind of four words creation fall redemption consummation but what's happening in this redemption period kind of like like everything you know between the it went bad until it's made perfect is it's being Made right, things are being made right. Now, does it happen just like that, all at once? No, it doesn't happen. All. There's an unfolding plan. There's something that's happening over time as God is working a plan of redemption. Right. So you know, right here from the very beginning, there is something called the proto-evangelium. Remember Genesis 3:15. What does God say to Satan? I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You are going to strike his heel. What is he going to do? That seat of the woman. He's going to crush your head. From right at this point, the battle is on between the seat of the woman and the seed of Satan. As Satan is going to try to keep this plan from unfolding. But God is unfolding that plan. Right? So that you know what happens is though Adam and Eve fall, God establishes a new humanity through Noah. He establishes a blessed nation through Abraham. He established a blessed family through David. Through the lineage of David, he brings a son who is Christ Jesus. Through that son, he brings salvation at the cross. This plan is unfolding across millennia, but it is one plan of redemption. Now, again, that may be obvious to you, but what that means is, as you read every story in the Bible, if you will, it all has a context and the context is a redemptive context. Now, as obvious it may seem, that's important to say. The reason that every heretic has his verse is what? He takes his verse out of context. Every heretic has his verse because he takes his verse out of context. But if I say I'm going to be interpreting some portion of scripture, you know, whether it's first Samuel, or whether it's the Psalms, or if it's Malachi or if it's something in 1 Thessalonians, it all fits in the redemptive context. It's, it's not just... Uh-oh. I get, no, I didn't get it. <laughs> um, it's all in a redemptive context, and that means if I begin to interpret things out of their context, I am not actually interpreting it correctly. Let me look at your notes and kind of say where this is unfolding. If you say the person really in focus, if the true hero... Of the whole biblical story is Christ, then you recognize that Roman numeral one there, the person in focus who is that, that's Christ. And he's not just kind of waiting for Matthew 26 to hang on the cross to be in focus. The whole Bible is moving forward, culminating as it were, in the gospel message of Christ. It, it, but even back here, as early as Genesis 3:15, the work of Christ was in view. It, it, it's not full-blown, it's fully expressed but the whole thing is unfolding into the message of who Christ is. So the Bible's theme, item A there, is expressed right at the beginning, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and her and your seed. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. The promise of Christ happens way back here at the fall. Okay? And by the way, we don't have to guess what that meaning was, because by the time you get way over here after the resurrection, that's the Luke 24:27. Do you remember this story? Jesus is now risen from the dead. He is walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember that story? He's walking with a couple of disciples. And for reasons we don't quite understand, Luke says they don't recognize him. Okay, And so we are told that Jesus, as he's walking with them, this resurrected Lord he began to explain to them how Moses and all the prophets in all the scriptures were revealing. Do you remember what Jesus said they were revealing? He revealed to them how Moses and all the prophets in all the scriptures were revealing what? The truth about him. Now, that's a very comprehensive statement. Moses is talking about the books of the Pentateuch, right? The prophets is talking about the rest of the Old Testament maybe with the exception of the wisdom literature, but he says he revealed to them what was said in Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. As though Jesus is saying, listen, it's all about me. And the great visual representation of that is Matthew 17. Okay, Remember the transfiguration? Jesus goes up on a mountain with his disciples. They stay behind. He goes to the apex of the mountain. And appearing on the mountain with Jesus in a cloud are two figures. Do you remember who they are? Moses and Elijah. Who does Moses represent? Or what does Moses represent? The law. Elijah represents the prophet. So they're saying it's, it's even visual now. All the law and the prophets indicate that he is their culmination. He's the apex of what they've all led to him. So the, the transfiguration is revealing this truth that was revealed in Genesis 3.15... In Luke 24, Jesus himself spoke of, it's all about me, and visually we see that in the transfiguration. Now, that has important implications for us. It means this, the Bible's message from the very beginning is not, you are the hero of the Bible. If you just straighten up and fly right and do good, you're God's hero. That's not the message. If the whole Bible is unfolding, Christ must come, then you begin to understand God is the hero of every text. Moses is not the hero. Still a sinner. Joshua was not the hero. Still a weak man, apart from the work of God. Gideon was not the hero. He was an idolater, even though God gave him a the victory. There's only one true hero of the Bible, and it is the God who is bringing redemption from the fall until Christ becomes the message that consumes everything, as it were, okay? One true hero of the Bible. Now, if that's the message, okay, that has a certain context for us. If I'm preaching from the Bible and I'm preaching the message of Samson, right, and I say, Samson was a great hero, well, that works for a few chapters, and then what happens? Well, he gets his hair cut off, right? Now, one alternative that you can have here is that, well, listen, okay, so as long as Samson had long hair, he was strong. Well if Samson's the hero and you're supposed to be like him, okay, so let's see. Samson had long hair and he was strong, therefore you should have. <laughs> <laughs> Jason's gone, I knew that was in the Bible. I knew that was in the Bible. But you see, that actually misses the point, right? Is the point that Samson was strong because he had long hair? No. Think of where we are. We're in the context of the book of Judges. What did everybody do in the book of Judges? Everybody did what was right. What? In their own. How did that work for them? Everybody do what's right in their own. How'd that go for you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. Remember the whole cycle. Remember goes right for a while, then you mess up, then you get punished, straighten up, then what happens again? Mess up, then you straighten up, then what happens again? Mess up. Straight. When people do what's right in their own, they just get messed up. You know. It That's the message. The message isn't you know you'd be as good as Samson. The message is, look at Samson. It doesn't matter how much human strength you have. As you're depending upon human strength, you're in trouble. How do I know that's the message? Because there's a redemptive context. That means Samson is not the hero. So if what I'm doing is just saying to people, you just be like Samson, I have not understood the text in its context. Now, you know, we're here in a college community. You think of how many young people come to the college and they're coming from, you know, Bible-believing families and small-town churches and big-town churches, and they come here, and, you know, they, they get some professor who says, you think we ought to be like the people of the Bible, do you? Did you ever read the Bible? You know? And young people come, and they just get their faith absolutely blown away because they suddenly learn that their heroes are rats, right? And they, they had no idea because they just heard the Bible school lessons, Right? That said you should be like Joshua, you should be like Gideon, you should be like Samson, you should be like Peter. And then some professor begins to show them, you know, what, what actual terrible people are in the Bible. Wouldn't it be great if the young people who came out of our churches, who came out of your preaching, when they were challenged by somebody who was saying, you know what, don't you recognize what terrible people were in the Bible? If you were had young people say, Yeah, I recognize that. That's the point. They need a hero. They need a rescuer. They need a... Sa- That's the message. Not that they're good, but that God is. All right? There is a redemptive context. And what that means is God is the hero of every text, not the human heroes. God is the hero. And it ultimately means Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's grace, of what God is doing to rescue his people. Do you know the name, name Tim Keller? Tim Keller kind of takes a lot of this information... And he boils it down by saying this way. He says, no matter where you are in the Bible, God is always coming to the rescue. That's the ultimate story. The story is not that Samson was great or Gideon was great or Moses was great or the people. The message is God is coming to the rescue. And if that message is gone, we haven't really seen the story, the narrative, in its redemptive context. Because in its redemptive context, the human heroes are not the true heroes. We have not really understood the text until we have said how is God coming to the rescue of these people. Ultimately, he does it in Jesus. And you see that in Second Corinthians 4:6. We understand this, that we gain knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That if God is coming to the rescue, the ultimate revelation of that rescue is what he does in Christ. Now, the people of God are not prepared for that early on, right? They're being prepared, prepared, prepared in different ways that we'll talk about in a minute until ultimately they understand the grace of God in the face of Jesus. Oh, now I understand who God is. You know, you ever find somebody who's kind of new in their faith and you say, you know, what they, they say, yeah, you know, wouldn't it be great if God were like Jesus? <laughs> well, actually, we gain knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus the rescue that comes in Christ is the full revelation of what God's been doing all along to rescue His people. That's the redemptive context. If that's the message, item C under Roman numeral 1, there are certain key implications for preaching if this redemptive context is what's happening in all of Scripture. The first preaching implication is this. We need to address an FCF. Chad, have you all looked at that yet? Okay. Okay. Now, look, if the fall if the fall happened right here, right? So the corruption of humanity and the corruption of our world entered right at this point, right? Then that means this redemptive context is all a consequence of our fallen condition, okay? Because all humanity is now existing in this fallen condition until ultimately the redemption accomplished by Christ. Well, that means if I'm here in any portion of Scripture as it's moving along... It's addressing some aspect of our fallen condition. We are not people who can fix ourselves, right? So the Bible is not saying to you, you know, you should have long hair so you can fix your situation, Jason. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, it's not even saying now that you have the Ten Commandments and you know what to do, you can be good enough for God, right? Listen, you're a fallen creature. You can't fix your own situation. As a fallen creature, you are born in sin. Sin characterizes your nature. For you to fix the situation is like saying, I want you to clean a white shirt with di- with muddy hands, right? You, you you clean off your white shirt with, with muddy hands. You, you say, I can't do that, right? As a fallen creature, you need rescue, all right? You can't rescue yourself. So you live in a fallen condition. And every text is some way revealing this fallen condition and aspect of it from which God must rescue us. Now, if that's the case, that there must be a divine solution to a human dilemma, if we can't clean off a white shirt with muddy hands, God's got to do something we can't do, then there are certain things that we begin to say are necessary for our preaching. First, all Scripture is redemptive revelation, and therefore we never preach the deadly Bees alone. Now, I'm just gonna look at you. Have you read that portion of the book yet? You recognize what deadly bees are? You've heard of killer bees? First guys? Okay. Okay, here, here's what the deadly bees are. The deadly bees are a sermon that is only oriented toward what you know what you know or you do. Okay? You you be more smart than someone, you be more right than someone, or you be more moral than someone, and God love you for that. Because your theology's better or your behavior's better. Now, listen, let's say something. That is not a biblical message. And yet it's very easy to preach, right? I open my Bible, and most preachers do this. They don't even know they're doing it. They open their Bible, and they're looking for one of two things. What duty or doctrine can I tell you you must do or know? That's my job today, tell you what duty or doctrine you must know or do. Now, the problem with that is, If what I'm preaching is only, only what you are to do or what you are to know, your status with God depends on whom? Yourself. It's just what you do or what you know, right? Now, we're all usually, you know, in our circles, we are pretty good at identifying legalists. And so we say to people, you're not going to be made right with God because of what you do, right? Right? But on the other hand, we are actually cognitive legalists because we say you're not going to be made right with God because of what you do. We're pretty sure you're going to be made right with God because of what you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I know you're not made right with God because you're better than other people. You're going to be made right with God because your doctrine is better than other people's. Listen, does your doctrine make you right with God? It actually doesn't. Actually, the Apostle Paul even says, knowledge only does what to you? Do you remember? Puffs you. That's all your knowledge. Your knowledge only puffs you up. Ultimately, what makes you right with God is not what you know or what you do, but what Christ has done and your faith in that. Not your knowledge, not your rightness, not your moral behavior. Your faith is not in you. Your faith is in him. If that's the case then we have to take care that we are not just preaching what I will call the deadly bees. I'm going to give you the three categories, okay? This is just for fun, and uh, it'll keep you awake here at night, okay? These are the three deadly bees, okay? There are three categories of deadly bees that come very naturally to all of us when we start preaching, okay? Now, you need to hear me say right at the beginning, these are not wrong in themselves, but by themselves they become deadly to the faith. First example. We look at some person in the Bible, and we point to them, and we say, you should be like. These are be-like messages, okay? All be-like messages. Does that have sticky? It does have sticky. All be-like messages, okay, are deadly to the faith, and we don't even recognize it. All right, but you recognize because I've given you some background, you look at Gideon and you say, Gideon was a great hero in the Bible. Okay? He took 300 men and he went up against 135,000 Midianites and he won because he was so faithful. Sounds like a great story until you actually read the biblical account. Now, did he go up with 300 men against 135,000? Yes, he actually did. Anybody remember what Gideon did with the spoil that he took from the 135,000 Midianites? Anybody remember what he did with that? He took the gold and he made an ephod. Now that's like a vest, okay? And and he makes a golden priestly vest out of it and then sets it up in his hometown as a way to do soothsaying, fortune-telling, so that people would come and pay him money in order to have their futures divine, and it would give him power over their lives. Gideon, the one who was given the great victory, turned the victory into idolatry in order to advance himself. Now, if I say to people, you just be like Gideon, what's the problem? I'm telling them to be like an idolater. You already know the problem with David, right? Be like David, just be an adulterer, a murderer, raised back, you know. Well then be like Abraham. Well, by the way, he didn't just give away his wife twice. Remember what else he did? When he didn't have a child in time, what did he do? Yeah, he slept with his wife's maid, right? Right? And then when his wife didn't like the child, what did what did Abraham do to the child and the maid? He put them out in the desert to die of exposure. Now think of that. He becomes a murderer of his own biological son. Do you want to tell people to be like Abraham? Really? You know, one of the things I think that happens in the Bible is the Bible takes care to tar virtually every human figure. If you just read the whole, not just read part of it, read the whole story, right? Why does the Bible do that? So that we will not say, just be like so-and-so, right? So we'll recognize there's only one hero. Who is that? That's Christ. So we're not saying, you know, just be like Moses, you know, just just, just be like the Apostle Peter. Just, you know. No, it doesn't work. Now, I will grant you there are a couple of people in the Bible that we don't have much dirt on, right? There are a couple of them, right? It says of Enoch, right, Jim? Enoch, what did he what? He walked with God and he was no more. Now, you just can't get much dirt in there. I mean, that's just all it says. You know, he walked with God, he was no more. You know, that's all it says. And Caleb I mean i don't I don't think anything negative said about Caleb. But maybe you'll come up with exceptions. I don't mean to be exhaustive here, but I mean, you can't hardly think of another example. Yeah, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You can now think of another major example. <laughs> you know, that you kind of say, you know, if anybody's discussed in detail, they got detailed problems, right? I mean, that's just the way it happens. Why? So that we'll say it's not enough just to say, be like someone. In fact, the characters of the Bible function like the law. Okay? In the law of God, we learn good behavior, don't we? Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. We learn good behavior. But it's actually deadly to think you're okay with God because you keep the law better than somebody else. After all, if you break one aspect of the law, how much have you actually broken? The whole thing. Right? So if all I'm doing is I'm pointing to some aspect of the law and say, you you just do that and you'll be okay with God, the problem with that is that's actually going to mess you up. So if I point at a biblical figure and I say, just be like him, the problem is the good stuff you can't actually be like because he couldn't consistently be like it himself. Another deadly message. If it's all that we say are be-good messages, we point to some moral command or good behavior in the Bible, and we here's the here's the ultimate message. We're kind of saying Boy Scouts are good and Girl Scouts are good and Christians are good. It's good to be good. It's bad to be bad. So don't you be bad. But instead you be good. God be happy with that. Amen. Benediction, let's go home. There's, there's actually a fairly famous title to an appendix of a less famous book. Okay, the famous bo- less famous book is called Messianic Character of American Education. But the appendix goes by this wonderful name, The Menace of the Sunday School. Isn't that cute? The Menace of the Sunday School. You know what's happened? The the man is describing what happens in a Sunday school class when the teacher, sounding so sweet and so warm and so kind, speaks to a little girl and says, Oh, Sally, if you're just a good little girl, Jesus will love you. Do you hear what I just said? It sounds sweet. It is absolute spiritual poison. If you are just a good little girl, Jesus will love you. Does God love us because we are good? What does every other religion in the world teach? God loves you or whatever you believe God to be because you somehow what? You climb up to that God or heaven or whatever it is. What does Christianity teach by contrast? It doesn't say that you climb up to God. What does it say? God reached down to you because you couldn't climb up to him. So if our message, you know, we just say, you know, the message this week is you shall not steal. Well, I've got a Bible verse for that. Why does every heretic have his verse? He takes his verse out of context. That wasn't the full message. Okay. Now, again, these are not wrong messages in themselves. They are wrong messages what? By themselves, if that's all that you say. That is not the full message. It's got a redemptive context, and we're going to have to say, how do we get that? The last one, by the way, that comes most easily to our lips, right, in our circles, is this. Be more disciplined. Right? Read your Bible more. Pray more. Go to church more. Especially go to Chet's church more. Right, Right, please. By the way, how much more will be enough for a holy God? Just a little more, and a little more, and a little more. It'll never be enough. It will never be enough. So if we actually say to people, you should just be more disciplined, you have to understand, as sweet as it may sound, as helpful as you intend it, this is deadly to the spiritual life. You say, well, I just told people, no, it's deadly to the spiritual life. Because if you tell people, just be more disciplined, there are only two possible human responses. The first possible human response is that of the rich young ruler. I want you to remember the story. Jesus is walking down the road, okay? A rich young ruler comes up to him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is, this is ideal evangelism. You know, no knocking on doors. You know, nobody in the cafeteria. You, you know, somebody just comes up to you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, to this one who has said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns it immediately. Okay. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know the commandments. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And what does the rich young ruler say about himself after he hears the commands? Master. All these things I have done since I was a boy. Now now listen, Jesus just got through saying only God is good. And what does the young man say about himself three seconds later? (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Me too. In which case he gave himself the status of whom? He gave himself the status of God. If all we do is we say to people, you just be good or more good than the guy down the street, then one possible reaction is simply pride. Been there, done that. Check that one off. You know, check that box, did that. If all I say to people is you be more disciplined, people say, great, done it. You know, spent 20 whole minutes in the Bible today. What's the other alternative? One alternative to say, got it checked off. If you actually say to people, listen, you just be disciplined enough for God, what's the other alternative, Jason? can't it's it's either pride or despair those are the only two possibilities okay if all i've said is you just be more disciplined the only two possibilities are pride or despair that's all that's why i said these are deadly bees they actually destroy spiritual life and yet all they thought we were doing was helping people now let me say it again these are not wrong by the (laughs) these are not wrong in themselves they are wrong what by themselves if that's all you say do we actually want to say to people, be good? I mean, is that a good thing to say in itself? I mean, you certainly don't want to say the opposite, right? I mean, <laughs> right? You don't want to say, be bad, you know. So so we recognize this, this is not wrong in itself. It's insufficient by itself. Does that make sense? It's insufficient. For instance, be like messages. Does the Apostle Paul ever say, be like me, follow my example? Does Paul ever say that? Follow my example, be like me. Does Paul ever say that? Yes, Jim, does he? Yeah, at least at least five times. Now finish the quote. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Now listen, there is a redemptive context. You hear that? There is a redemptive con- I have to follow another in order for you to follow me, right? This is not dependent on me. There is a redemptive context. These are not wrong messages in themselves. They are wrong messages by themselves because in their essence, all of these messages are the same thing. They are sola, bootstrapsa messages. Okay? All right? They are just saying, you just lift yourself up by your own bootstraps and that will fix it. I mean, that's the essence of that message, right? It's just sola, bootstrapsa, you know? You you, you just fix it. You just pick yourself. And by the way, that is not the gospel. That's not the redemptive message. Okay, now where we are is just item C1, okay? The implication for seeing all of Scripture as this redemptive message, okay, is that never And here is God saying, you just be good and I'll be happy. That, that just doesn't appear in the redemptive. So if all we've said to people is, you just be like or be good or be, we'll just say that message does not occur in the biblical record. <laughs> not unto itself. Because it's got a redemptive context. So, if you're saying, "How do we keep messages redemptive? Keep them in their context?" Then that's item C2. Okay, it's just remembering this: to be Christ-centered does not mean all texts mention Jesus. Right? All texts do not mention Jesus, but all have some relation to his redemption. So as we're thinking, all right, I've got a text somewhere on this redemptive timeline here, okay? And I'm not going to pretend that every text in every place mentions the name of Jesus. I mean, being Christ-centered is not trying to make Jesus magically appear where the text does not mention him. Have you heard that kind of preaching, right? Okay, the people of Noah's family were saved in the ark. And the ark was made out of wood. They were saved by the wood. And we know that Jesus was crucified upon a cross that was made of wood. So the ark is really about the... (laughs) See, you're going to be great preachers Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And you should know this, by the way. The wood was was actually... Do you remember this in the biblical? It was gopher wood. And and gophers live in the ground. <laughs> and Jesus came up out of the. So so the ark is really about not just the cross but the resurrection. Yeah. Okay, now you need to say, this is not what I'm talking about. Okay, this is not what I'm talking about. That's what is known as allegorical preaching, right? Which totally depends upon the imagination of the preacher, not the context of the biblical text, right? So, you know, that's not what I'm talking... We're not trying to take out our magic wand and say, I'm going to make sure that you know that this is a Christian message by making Jesus magically appear out of the gopher wood, okay? That's not what I'm talking about, okay? What I'm talking about is there's an unfolding revelation of the nature of the grace of God. God is saying, I'm the hero. I have to be fixing what you cannot fix yourself. God is providing what you cannot provide for yourself. And the culmination of that message is in Christ. In the rescue of Noah, do we see God providing what humanity cannot provide for itself? Yes. Because in itself, humanity would have been under what? Every man did... uh, I lost it. Right. Um, uh, Every thought of the imaginations of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought of the imagination of his heart was only evil continually was the estate of humanity. Totally deserving of the wrath of God. Did God nonetheless rescue humanity? Could humanity have rescued itself? No. Could Noah have rescued himself? No. Was Noah rescued because his family was entirely holy, good, chaste, and pure? No. As a matter of fact, what happened when they got out from having been saved? What did Noah happen? He got drunk. What did his son do? The biblical account kind of either the son slept with his father or his father's wife. One of the two. It's hard to tell from the text, right? So we have immediately drunkenness and incest in this saved family. Did God save humanity because Noah was so good? No. God saved humanity because God was so good. God was providing what we could not provide for ourselves. That message of grace in a fallen condition is what is unfolding, 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 unfolding until it reaches its apex in the coming of Christ we are not talking about making Jesus appear we are talking about showing how the grace of God is present okay how is the grace of God unfolding 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 until its greatest manifestation is in Christ now having said you, yeah, I see item 2 uh, excuse me item C2 all texts do not mention Jesus but all have some relation to his redemption Ultimately, what we're going to be saying is this. Expository preaching, that is, if you're really unfolding what the text says, not allegorical preaching, okay, not just topical preaching where I come up with the topics. Okay, If you're actually saying what the text says, which is what expository preaching is, to say what the text says, the meaning of the message is the meaning of the text. That's expository preaching. Okay, The meaning of the text becomes the meaning of the message. If that's what you're doing, then expository preaching, saying what Christ says, is Christ-centered preaching in the sense of we are showing wherever we are in Scripture what the text says relative to redemption. Okay? I'm not trying to make the cross appear everywhere. I'm not trying to make Jesus appear everywhere. I am saying somehow God is coming to the rescue here. God is providing for people what they cannot provide for themselves so that when Jesus comes... They will understand who he is and what he must do. Okay? I'm just going to pause here for some questions, okay? But I want you to hear me say it clearly. What I'm, I'm not saying that we're trying... People Sometimes a book title gets me in trouble, christ Center preaching. People think I'm trying to make Jesus appear everywhere or teach you to do the same. And then you feel like you're preaching without integrity, right? Because you look at Jesus, well, he's not mentioned there. I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. But somehow God is rescuing people who cannot rescue themselves. Somehow God is providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. And that little seed salvation message, that little grace message, is ultimately going to find its culmination in Christ. So we're trying to identify the seed, even if we're not going to say the full fruit is evident yet. All right? I'm going to pause right here and just see if you have questions before we go into big Roman numeral two. Okay? If you have questions for me about just where we've gone so far, these messages are not enough. They're not saying they're wrong, but they're not enough. And the reason is because all the Bible is redemptive revelation, revealing how we cannot take care of ourselves, so God has to keep coming to the rescue. Questions for me so far? Jason. Doctrine, thank you, because you're asking if if doctrine is not kind of the end goal of the message, does doctrine still have a place in the message, right? And the answer I think is doctrine definitely has a place in the message, but it's not it's not the end unto itself. So if I say to people, listen, you should know that God is sovereign over the whole of life, and as long as you know that, you're okay with God. I'll say, actually, you're not okay with God at all, right? Even the who believes and still is not saved, according to the book of James. You know, even the devils believe. You know, I I mean, simple belief is not enough, right? Simple, even correct belief is not enough. It's dependence that's actually what God is saying is required for salvation. So, if we say, is it necessary to teach doctrine and duty? The answer is yes, but it's insufficient. So what I will ultimately say, and we'll get there in a little bit, is, listen, what we need, need to make sure is people know that their dependence is upon the grace of God in Christ. That's what, now, sometimes we'll lay the foundation first, right? And so we'll say, folks, I'm going to talk to you today about reading your Bible more. Okay? But listen, I need you to know up front that God's not going to love you more because you read your Bible more. A- after all, your best works are only, what to God? Filthy rags. Right? So not, God isn't going to love you more Because you read your Bible We read our Bible more So that we will know more of his love Not gain more of it okay? Now With that clear Let's talk about how we understand More of God's love by reading the scriptures Now I've got the, I laid the foundation first Sometimes I will go the other way Okay, um, this, is, this is sometimes What the Apostle Paul would do He would say to people things like you know, you, um, live as children of light. Well, live as children of light, you know, that means be, be holy and offer your bodies. You, you, you just be a good person. And then he'd say, because you are holy and acceptable to God. You know how that unfolds? Romans twelve one. Brothers, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And we often say, you'd be a good living sacrifice, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God. But God is actually saying, no, you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice because you are holy and acceptable to God, because he's already made you holy to himself, which is Paul saying you, you act and then recognize it's on the basis of what God has already made you to be. By his grace, not by your acting. Okay. So some, I, 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 I'll I, get there more. Sometimes we lay the foundation. We say, here are the implications. Sometimes we flip it and we say, do this because God has already loved you and made you his own and gives you the strength to do it. And sometimes we'll weave, weave it through. My, My ultimate message is this. By the time people walk away, do they recognize what you have called them to do is in God's strength, not their own. Okay. Do they recognize their dependence is upon God? Um, uh, Chet's heard this in other contexts, but let me just kind of say it. One of the, <laughs> I mean, this is really scary because you guys are going to be preaching tomorrow, okay? <laughs> okay. So, so so, here's one of the test questions of is this really even a Christian message or not? Is you hear a message and you say, would that message have been acceptable in a synagogue or a mosque? Hear that? I mean, if I just say to people, you be good, you be faithful to your spouse, is any Jew now upset with that message? You should be, no. Is any Muslim upset with this message? You should, no. Well, if if, if no Jew and no Muslim is upset with it, believe it or not, there is something really wrong with this message. Because we are told that, that the cross is an offense, a stumbling block, right, to those who do not understand the gospel. So if all we did was preach morality or doctrine... By the way, is any, is any Muslim upset if you say, you should believe that God is sovereign? Any Muslim upset with that? No. These are necessary but insufficient. Okay. So the sufficiency may be explained early. You're dependent upon the grace of God. Or we may say, here's the duty your doctrine. Say, by the way, apart from the grace of God, this will make no difference. So we we may lay the foundation... Or come back against it but the whole th- idea is you know kind of we, we tease what do i do with my pens you know we say you know in kind of a a very typical western culture message there's three points sometimes there's two but if you all read my book in two there's an implied third which is the tension between the two right so you know there's there's this we come from roman Western thinking we don't even know it so there's kind of a three way we build sermons we don't even know it but we do my goal is sometimes the cross the message of grace God's provision happens early sometimes it happens late sometimes it's woven throughout the whole point is by the time you're done are people dependent on themselves or upon their savior I mean again if you've looked at the book you know just a little thing you know, people are going to walk away from you They've heard your message. They're going to walk away with you, from you to do what you said must be done. Who are they holding in their hand as they go out the door? Me, myself, and I. We're going to do it. Or are they holding in their hand their Savior? Because if they go out without the Savior, they go out to despair. If all he says, you, you just know more than other people. You just do better than other people. Ultimately, those are despairing messages. So the whole idea is, do they understand the grace of God before we're done? And there's different strategies for doing that. But before we're done, is the grace of God present? Okay, I'm going to look at my watch here. We need to take a break. Is that okay? Can we take ten minutes? So we'll come back, and we're going to say, all right, if grace needs to be on the table, how do we make sure we're doing it fair to the text, okay? Not importing, not creating How do we make sure we're being fair to the text and saying the grace of God is being revealed? How do we make sure we see it? What are we going to do? Ten minutes, okay? Okay, ten minutes.